Welcome to Rhetorically Speaking, the podcast that explores how and why rhetoric matters. I'm your host, Cassie Wright. On today's episode, we talk about archives, anthologies, and the politics of translation with doctors Christina Ramirez and Jessica Enoch, co-authors of the recently released Mestiza Rhetorics, an anthology of Mexicana activism in the Spanish language press from 1887 to 1922. So instead of inquiring into how the world talks about women, Today, we explore how women talk about the world, particularly at a historic moment when the Mexican people were confronting radical political revolution and rapidly shifting social circumstances. How did these women get people to listen to them and what risks were involved then? What's the value in paying audience to their writings once more now? That's what we explore today, rhetorically speaking. And I said to myself, someday I'm going to meet her and I'm going to work with her. My name is Dr. Christina Ramirez, and I am associate professor at the University of Arizona. I research and write about Mexican women journalists and activists, and I also would call myself a feminist rhetorical recovery scholar. Hi, I'm Jess Enoch. I'm a professor of English at the University of Maryland, and my research is in feminist historiography as well. I do a lot of recovery work similarly. And of course, the reason why we're here is because a lot of the recovery work I've done has to do with recovering Mexican women rhetors and their rhetorical significance and achievements. I think we either met in 2012 or 2013. So we kind of started talking. I think we made an appointment to meet and, and after four C's. And we became very quick friends as well. So that actually that helped. But go ahead, Cree. What do you how do you remember it? So I met Jess um not personally, but I met her through her scholarship while I was in grad school. And I read her piece that was in college English over and over again. And I said to myself, someday I'm going to meet her and I'm going to work with her. And so <laughs> here we are, you know, I guess, you know, 10, 12 years later, and we have a book together, which I'm just absolutely thrilled for. That work is their recently completed anthology, Mestiza Rhetorics, published by Southern Illinois University Press. Mestiza Rhetorics is the first bilingual anthology dedicated to Mexicana rhetorics across Mexico and in the U.S., This book is an important and unique work of feminist historical recovery, archiving and curating 34 key articles, letters, speeches, and other genres written by women during the time of the Mexican Revolution. Much of the anthology's text focuses on the tensions between the Mexican Revolution and Mexican women's social roles. Yeah, so I think there's there's definitely a grappling with feminism, and and it's not like U.S. feminism. It's kind of like, what is the place of women in Mexican society. And and this came to us in reading both Maria Luisa Garza and also um, Artemisa Sainz Royo, who she wrote as Xochitl and Garza wrote as Lorilei. Especially with the Mexican Revolution, it was really shaking things up as to kind of how women were identifying with their their place in society. So there's a lot of kind of reflection on just gender roles, but also looking outward to kind of 
feminism within like women's right to vote in the United States, but then also internationally. There's a lot of discussion about writing and reading and kind of women's access to education and how women should argue for, you know, about educational rights. In terms of, of tropes, feminism, education, women in society, just like what Jess said, their their role in society, their role as women in the Mexican Revolution, women globally. You know, they were writing on both sides of the border and they were being influenced by the social, cultural and political uh, settings of the United States, as well as Mexico. But how do you know where to begin? Curating an anthology is no small task. It took Christina and Jess the better part of several years to archive and curate this collection. The, the curating was, I, I think, a little bit more, more difficult because Jess and I, at first we thought we had a lot of women, but then when we went back to the digital archives, we realized that there were a lot more women writing. We started looking through these amazing archives, just grabbing everything that looked like it could possibly work. And then we created this archive that is not the book. I mean, there's so many more, so many more articles and essays. I think that we did this because we were both so just really invested in having other people be able to encounter these texts in full and to provide a kind of mini archive so that people so in graduate class... what kind of archive? In any historical project, one often needs to confront parameters of time and space. From when and where would these writings come from? For Jess and Christina, the Mexican Revolution proved pretty fertile ground for Mexicana journalists of the time. Even though both Jess and Christina had worked on historical recovery of these writings before, they realized that their previous work had really only scratched the surface. Mestiza rhetorics then allowed Jessica and Christina to represent a much greater diversity of voices and perspectives into this conversation around Mestiza rhetorics. Indeed, diversity seemed to be a central purpose buttressing the spirit of this collection. One bore down of an experience Jessica had as a graduate student at Penn when taking a class with Cheryl Glenn. And I, I wrote this on my sticky pad because I wanted to make sure I didn't forget this because I just remember us talking for a long time about um, Shirley Logan's anthology with Pen and Voice, which came out, I think, in 1996 when I was in graduate school. So that's a critical anthology of African-American women rhetors. And it was so transformative to me to read those essays in full and to be able to read a diverse array of essays, not just one figure, but different figures and kind of to see, oh, they weren't all arguing the same thing or about the same topics, but look at this diversity of this moment that Shirley captured in this just amazing anthology. And I remember us coming always, I kind of kind of kept it next to my desk. I know, Cree, we talked about it a lot. I kind of try to use it as a base. And we talk about it in our introduction is that we want to kind of provide that same type of experience for readers today, that it was a way to be able to to, to provide readers with these texts in full so that, they, that we could get this conversation that was so important. And part of getting people talking is through productive tension, right? By curating a collection that intentionally includes perspectives and writing and women that don't always agree with one another. Something that can't always come through in a book focused on a specific writer or a given theme. But I think what a 
you know, what an anthology can really do that maybe a book can't is to show the diversity instead of trying to make an argument about <laughs> mestizo rhetorics. And I think that that's what we tried to do. I mean, as, as Chris said, we, we have featured two women who are debating one another and disagreeing with one another. We talk about women who, uh, who argue for more conservative roles, women who really are, you know, on the battle lines of the revolution and are like speaking out to Mexican leaders and, and calling them out. This is a, a really um, historic and important collection because we're bringing this, these pieces, just like Jess said, from so many disparate places. And to have them all together and to be able to say, here's a, uh, a collective of these women's voices, let's study them. I think we really wanted to give readers a sense that they should read around and kind of experiment with putting different writers together and thinking about, you know, are these in are these two figures in conversation with one another? And we're really so proud of the book. And, you know, it's kind of like, I stand by that decision. I think that that was a good one. I'm glad that we, we did that. I think thematizing it would have been a little too heavy handed on in terms of how readers would have made their way through. Yeah. And, and we, I think that that was very purposeful. It took us a while to notice because we were at first collecting everything but then we noticed that there was a cross-border conversation happening. And Jessica had this wonderful idea of visually representing that. Jess, you want to talk about that? Oh, we, yeah, we did do the map and the introduction to try to just show people where, where the newspapers were located or where, where the women were saying they were writing from so that we could give kind of a visual. And then I, I like that part in the introduction where we kind of trouble the idea that even in locating them there, these women were so mobile in terms of crossing and recrossing the border and, you know, writing about Mexican politics and writing about U.S. politics, um, global politics, thinking about world the World War, talking about peace and feminism and kind of having an eye on what women were talking about all over the world in Italy and France. It was... It, it was really astounding. And um, and I think like when you step back, you're like, of course it makes sense, but it was really so amazing to see it in textual form. The cross-border conversations about politics, war, education, peace, and women's social roles aren't easily done and often come at great consequence and risk for the authors. Yeah, I, you know, these were very material consequences what these women were facing. Um, for example, for Laurena Wright de Kleinhans, it wasn't so much because they were really um, inserting themselves in the elite conversation. But then you you jump maybe about 10 years later with Juana Belen Gutierrez de Mendoza. She was jailed about nine or 10 times. Her press was confiscated. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these women fled to the U.S. side of the border because they were under direct threat, given their resistance to Mexican leaders. And a few were jailed. You know, this was a real, these were very real dangers that a lot of these women were encountering and still, you know, giving voice to their, um, to the arguments they wanted to make about the government and politics and things along those lines. And then um, we also made some an interesting decision to include anonymous writings. And, and it's like, well, how do you know that they're women? Mm, I don't know if that um, really matters so much, but I think 
I think they were women. <laughs> and I think they, they remained anonymous because of the risks of, of publishing some of these ideas, right? One of the anonymous writings was on La Liga Femenil Mexicanista, and it was a, a league of women who were coming together and congregating in um, in Laredo, Texas. That's still a very dangerous place. People, you know, getting shot in the streets and journalists getting killed. And so they published it anonymously. So there there were some real risks, material, life-threatening risks for these women, um, as well as how they were perceived with their family and, and in the home and in society because things were, um, ideas and philosophies were shifting so, so heavily. So arguably each contribution in the anthology is important and was picked for a certain reason. But in any archival project, usually one has a favorite. I can speak. I, when you immediately said that, I, I thought of Paz. I don't know, um, Cree, if, if this one would be. But she's writing to Las um, Violetas, and she's in Louisiana, but she was from Cuba. And she's writing to women in Mexico about how she's been reading their writings and how much they're inspiring to her and how much she loves to read their words and how she sees their writing as beautiful. And it's a very short entry. Um, but to me, it kind of, like right when you said that, it just gave me this feeling of what the whole volume kind of, what we're trying to get the whole volume to do is like, for me, what a lot of the collection is, is and what I've always kind of thought of what feminist historiography is, such a big part of it is just like, being audience to women's writing and being audience to listening to women who might be struggling to be heard, you know? Um, and so, so um, my, my favorite, and we found um, this woman through the archive, Elena Arismendi Mejia. She's the second to, to last one, but uh, she was, really rhetorically savvy and she was thinking about feminism intersectionally in a time when it you know wasn't quite it wasn't quite there but it's because she was global she went somewhere else and inserted herself in places that you know were probably racist and sexist and all of those things and so that got her thinking about how feminism is different for different women how we encounter these women's writings and mestiza rhetorics is as important as the arguments and content itself. The one thing I want to say, though, that it is translated, but we also offer the Spanish, which I am like so proud of that component of this book. I believe that this is the first bilingual text in our discipline. Readers confront the Spanish, the original Spanish version first, so they you know, so we're hoping that Spanish-speaking readers, Spanish-reading readers can read those selections and don't skip over those. And, and we write in the introduction that we hope this is an invitation for multilingual students, for thinking about multilingualism in new ways, for, for really underscoring the importance of multilingual research practices. And so, you know, I think 
anyone who's kind of done research like Christina and I did in our previous books realized how closed a conversation can be and a research practice can be if we don't look at multiple languages. This was one of the richest moments for me in interacting with the text and in speaking with Christina and Jessica. There's ongoing debate around the ethics and politics of translation in the academic community. Some have critiqued translation for a kind of symbolic violence that takes away or even colonizes the original text. And in today's popular media context, we might even think about translation as a mechanism that potentially invites what we call misinformation. So how to mitigate this potential of misinformation is a key ethical consideration when working with another's words and language. Um, so Lawrence Venuti, he's, um, he's a, a big scholar in translation studies and, and he, he does, he talks about, you know, violence being enacted on, on texts. And if you really stop to think about it, it, it is, it's a, it's a violent, it can be a violent act. You're taking a text out of its original linguistic position, right? And you're shifting it into another. And there's a lot that doesn't translate. The The phrase is lost in translation. And um, but what Jess and I see is that there is a lot found in translation. And we try to I kind of convey the messiness of the translation and how how difficult it was. You know, we've I think both of us have done a lot of work with women's writing, and I don't feel like I've ever been this close to any women's writing that I've ever studied in the, kind of the 20 plus years I've been in this profession because we were just looking at work, just at the word level. What, what, what if we said, what if it's this way instead of this way? Well, how would that work? And why would she, why would we want that inflection instead of this inflection if she said this in the last sentence? I mean, it was really so intimate and, and really one that, um, that I feel privileged that we were able to do, even that it's flawed. You know, I really do see the flaws um, there. And I, and I think that's part of every research process, but it'll be part of this one as well. We challenge our readers to see it differently that, yes, we recognize, you know, the violent act that translation can be, but it's also an act of reaching across, across the lines, across difference and saying, we want to understand what you're saying. We want to understand your position. We want to understand your world. And so that's also um, what translation can be. Um, I hope this conveys, you know, the importance of looking in multiple languages for research and, and respecting those languages as well, but, but to know a conversation must mean knowing it in multiple languages too. Here I want to just say that I, I just came back from two weeks um, on a from a talk tour in in Mexico. This this book is crossing borders. If it were just in English, it would not have been accessible to the graduate students and the, the faculty that I was speaking to down in Mexico. And they had full access to these women's writings. The students were thrilled. This book 
its um, its topic of feminism and their their writings is already crossing borders, which I think is so metaphorical and so significant because this is exactly what we wanted, that it's not just reaching our English-speaking audiences here, but as well as down in Mexico, because this is what these women intended. Hmm. I'm good. I'm glad. It's, I am so excited to hear about people's reading experiences. It'll be interesting to get feedback. With 34 different contributions from different perspectives and voices and geopolitical locations, how might one teach a text like this? What would Jess and Christina want readers to take away from it? Uh, what can they say? What can they not say? Um, what are the boundaries to, uh, to their, their message, right? Um, so that's, that's some of the way that, that I would uh, approach it is to really look at um, not just what they're saying, but how they're saying it. I hope that I would teach it. I got, I was lucky to have Cheryl Glenn as my mentor at Penn State. And when we read Shirley's book, we read it cover to cover. And um, I hope that's how I would teach the book too, because I think the whole experience to me is just really important instead of kind of cherry picking the articles that might you might identify with but even the ones that are kind of uncomfortable as Chris said there's at least one that is arguing kind of with heavy resistance to feminist principles and kind of adopting um, more traditional gender roles and you know I think that that was part of the moment and what we're trying to capture Um, so I think I would teach it that way and to ask students to talk about the paths that they found the conversation is so important to me. And I think through that conversation, we could talk about the kind of rhetorical strategies these women were writing. Jess and I had this conversation many times that looking at these women's writings, they were so rhetorically savvy. They knew what they were doing. They knew the, the cultural trigger points. And then again, they also knew when to maybe stay anonymous Mestiza Rhetorics does a lot of things that other books in our field don't always do. It works across Spanish and English. It centers Latina women's voices and knowledge, something that remains a struggle even in spaces of decolonial work where men still often lead the conversation. And perhaps most importantly, this centering does important work to counter stereotypes through a method known as counterstory. And you mentioned Asia's work, Asia Martinez's work. They're really important work on counterstory. I think that there's a lot of counterstory in this book that we could kind of read into and kind of see some conversations across time and, and maybe even a framework through Asia that helps us to read these, these women's work. As a cross-border collection working with women's writings in both Mexico and the U.S., Mestiza Rhetorics offers an important opportunity to explore the concerns, struggles, and victories of Latinas throughout the U.S.-Mexico borderland. It's a rich collection filled with challenging and inspiring texts that's sure to invite compelling conversation for years to come. You know, I'm hoping that 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 those conversations happen um, in our field. And I already see them, you know, it's already happening, not so much inspired by our book, but that our book is a part of, I hope, yeah. So th- thank you, Jess, that definitely um, that, it, that it opens up other conversations. So 
While I was in Mexico, there was a graduate student that I was speaking with. She was super excited to see this text and to see women at the center and core of a text. And I asked her, do you read very many women? And she just paused and shook her head. Very little. And so the benefits of this is that it, it awakens students to the fact that there are uh, scholars in the United States who are interested in these cross-border conversations and that we do think that Mexican women voices are important on both sides of the border. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Christina and Jessica for their generous time and rich insights. And special thanks to our new student co-producer, Jordan Tirico, who helped with marketing and transcription of today's episode. All show music by Blue Dot Sessions and theme song by Mon Fassier. Head on over to our show notes page at rhetoricallyspeaking.stanford.edu to access more information about the collection and its authors. And stay tuned for our next show when we push back on the machinery of New Year's resolutions and explore how to do nothing with Jenny O'Dell. Episode 11 drops at the end of February. Mm-hmm.